0: folks, welcome to song Podcast, I'm Mark I'm Chris How you doing, Chris?
1: I'm alright, I'm alright uh, This is something a bit different We've not done one of these in a while uh, This is a town hall mm-hmm. uh, Usually with town halls we take questions from our audience um, But this time, there's just so many hot topics kicking around in the same vein That I thought, Mark, we should do a town hall Festival Fever Special mm-hmm. Edition And that we are doing, yeah, yeah. But uh, before we get to that, I understand you have been in Eastern Europe getting some weapons training. Yeah, (laughs) just in case the Russians
0: decide to really take it seriously.
1: Which Russians? Uh, There's so many to worry about. There, so many factions.
0: There is, yeah. Probably primarily, and they're from their point of view, maybe the Belarusian
1: Russian, Belarusian Russians. Well, you know what, you know what, I think most people that follow this podcast know I follow this stuff fairly closely, As right? And I suspect, really, that at the heart of this there is simply a lack of material for good action films, right? They're trying to extend the Taken franchise because this week, basically, what we've done. We've taken 25,000 heavily armed, trained convicts and put them in a country with an inept dictator in charge. Mm-hmm. And basically we're just going to have See what maybe a few decades worth of good material on human trafficking, gangs, guns, mm-hmm. inter-gang wars, organised crime families from Belarus... It's really it's gonna be fertile territory for a lot of uh, action heroes. Um maybe Mission Impossible seven could be based there. Yeah. That kind of thing. I mean it's it's pretty considerate
0: yeah, of, yeah.
1: Of, of them overall.
0: You Know, I was in Krakow for a stag do, and we did. We, we were shooting guns on the Saturday, which was the day when Prashogan decided he was gonna try and take Moscow, <laughs> and which, which uh, failed really quickly, <laughs> bizarrely. And then, <laughs> I and then always forgiven, which is <laughs> absolutely baffling. So, I remember like the morning of like my pal Callum who is like he is a politics and history like lecturer um, and he fucking loves history and politics and he he's he's really tuned into this shit which is going on just now as well and and we were talking about it in the morning something mate this is fucking mental <laughs> and I was like yeah it's just as where we're going to go shoot some guns and learn how to do it just in case a <laughs> few steps ahead d- this part of the world you know uh, what I mean <laughs> um, yeah. so it was kind of nice timing you're not be <laughs> the only people in
1: Poland getting put like dusting off and cleaning out their old fucking weapons
0: yeah <laughs> so they get stag there's all the time you can get a stag package if you your stags over seven people but we only had six so we just booked it the normal way um, and they were the two most humorless guys I've ever met even by Polish standards <laughs> in my entire life they take they took it very fucking seriously indeed it's a Serious uh, business being Polish uh, Yeah <laughs> And yeah Very much so So it was fun uh, We all got breathalyzed before it <laughs> Aye Yeah Wow um, And we decided to have a pint A couple of pints before we went <laughs> As soon as I learned That we were going to get breathalyzed The guy basically walked in You've been drinking And we were like Yeah oh, a little bit He's like Okay And then pulls our a And goes Green good Red no <laughs> we're like Okay <laughs> So um, they fell Yes oh, <laughs> so, wow. oh and that ruined it for them It ruined it for the fittest guy Didn't it ruin it for the, for the unfit guy Then it was like hold his drink wow, okay. Which was
1: staggering I mean the thing is as well If Poland does end up getting brought into a, a conflict The Russians are going to be drunk anyway aren't they so. Yeah yeah totally <laughs> So the Polish <laughs> Fucking love exactly. vodka gonna be sc- some Ramy <laughs> okay, Come on You might make this realistic We should be getting drunk Before we fire the guns mm. um, But yeah it's, it's been a weird week For that stuff eh? And let's not kid ourselves man. I mean Putin basically said To that guy Lukashenko, go here You're taking them I don't want them in my country Because they're just going to start gangs And he's like oh, oh what do I get And he's like Oh you can tell everyone You fixed it For a couple <laughs> of days <laughs> That's basically the deal yeah. we got
0: right Yeah but but some, yeah.
1: some top class
0: trolling By the CIA going on Just now as well So oh, they knew the about it In advance <laughs> Implicating higher level
1: Officials man That's brilliant I you like love, how they all Just absolutely sat it out They were like We're not giving him The excuse to blame this on us I mean he tried anyway yeah. but They're just like <laughs> Everybody stand back Nobody touch it Don't give him any excuse To say that this mm. is our fault but Fuck man the, the boys still tried To make it work didn't they They even phoned them And said by the way It's not us <laughs> 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 And they were like Alright cool <laughs> We're going to say it's you anyway Is that okay I mean our people believe in, uh, so yeah, okay, quite a week, Um but in amongst all the fun and games uh, in Eastern Europe, there was fun and games going on in the festival scene up and down the UK, it was a big weekend for Glastonbury that had a few talking points, which... Clearly pale in comparison to the importance of what's going on in the aforementioned <laughs> conflict. But uh, there were some others as well. Um, and it just seemed like anybody that follows us on Twitter just now will know that we've brought a few of these up uh, across uh, the last week or so. But yeah, we thought, like, why not just group them all together and do a bit of a town hall? Just some of the key points that have been coming up for the last couple of weeks in and around the the issue of festivals Mm -hmm. and just burn through them. So, I mean, that's what we've done. Uh, Before we do that, I suppose, a little bit of due diligence. If you want to hear uh, a bonus episode, um, an unsong about uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Mm -hmm. Bonnie Tyler... Then mm. you still have time to sign up to our lowest tier if you want I mean you can join the record club, the record club's great But sign up to the lowest tier if you just want to get the bonus content Yeah. And uh, there's a load more in there as well More more so than just that, that one episode But that one episode alone, trust me, it's worth it It's a, it's a belter Loads of Jim Steinman, some vampire musicals
0: mm. General nonsense It's great Um, It's a really one of the most fun ones that we've done Yep um, if you if you regularly check our feeds and you're a fan And you'll have come across the concept before
1: um, But this one is extra jovial <laughs> Shall we say <laughs> And extra long as well it? It's extra long yeah. <laughs> There's no shortage I to say about it uh, But yeah, so uh, regarding this festival stuff um, I actually intended to come to this episode without any notes Mark And as you can see, I've absolutely failed uh, to that end mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm starting to think I might have a problem <laughs> I can't turn up for a podcast without... Horribly over preparing.
0: Yeah, I didn't do any notes, and you know you're making me look bad. So thanks for that, man.
1: So uh, part of my notes, um, I, I kind of got into a wee bit of deep dive, right? And I found this website, and it's called Vibrate, Viber Eight. Uh, Viber 8. Mm-hmm. And they have, they've released a festival report 2022, which I thought was actually really interesting. And so I've gleaned some of the, the more salient details from it to save you reading through the whole thing. Uh, but basically they analysed 330 festivals from around the globe to try and um, uh, coalesce some useful statistics uh, of, of what might be going on. So I'll, I'll go through them before we get into the questions, because it's quite interesting some of the things that it, it shines a light on. And also, you know, it's useful to have some of your preconceptions challenged, because this Did actually surprise me in a few ways I will say one thing I'm going to talk about a lot uh, Is Glastonbury uh, Because it was a big weekend A lot of things came from that This actually told me That the first Glastonbury happened in 1970 It was £1 a ticket And there were 1500 people Mm -hmm. How cute is that? Yeah, a little hippie festival in the (laughs) 70s (laughs) That's three quarters of the Uh barras And then in 2022 Uh, which by the way is not this year and I suspect the crowd is even bigger. Anybody looking at the Elton John performance probably agrees. But 2022 was 200,000 people and tickets started... £335 plus booking fee
0: Yeah, you can only book for the
1: whole weekend eh? You can't book a day ticket So you've got to go the whole thing It's a big commitment, really aye, It got is, that. it's a big jump And we'll, we'll come back to the finances of that um, I will say it's not the biggest festival uh, on the go uh, Primavera gets 500000 over two weekends Which is probably about to get bigger Because they're about to expand to Madrid and Barcelona mm-hmm. And Coachella gets 750000 over two weekends Yeah Coachella is probably the biggest festival more, I think it is right? the biggest one yeah um, so just some stats here uh, in 2022 the average festival earned 10.7 million dollars from ticket sales now that's that's actually kind of a slightly useless statistic unless you're just comparing it year upon year because um, that includes festivals from down at like less than 5,000 people all the way up to these mega 80,000 plus events that are like certain categories that they use clearly Coachella is well above even that at 750,000 the breakdown was roughly as follows. Small festivals, that's sub 5,000 people, was 302,000 profit. Medium festivals, 1.9 million. Big festivals, 5.6 million. Huge festivals, which I believe was like over 50,000, was 12.8. And mega was anything over 80,000. That's 54 million profit. Mm -hmm on average, which is probably less than I expect. And see, when you look at the valuations of some of these companies, I realise that company valuations is a very, very complicated business. (laughs) Um, For example, the valuation of the company behind Primavera looks incredibly low, given the size of what that thing represents. So, I am not an accountancy expert. Mm. I cannot possibly imagine the many, many ways in which the money is divvied up um, and where these numbers come from. But there is clearly a lot of money changing hands Quite interesting
0: that isn't it Because I would I would have expected the, the, the turnover of these festivals to be a lot more Because I guess like your Guns N' Roses and your Elton John from Glasgow this year I mean what do you think their guarantee is going to be? It's going
1: to be at least a million right? I mean, oh, I, I, well 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 in excess Yeah of that, at, at least it? I mean, right When so Green Day played or almost played mm-hmm. in Glasgow last time I think it was 1 or 1. 1.5 million Yeah I mean, I mean Prince was a million famously a million I and mean, turnover will be massively in excess of that But also the, the costs will be very, very high as well Yeah, but you got to
0: think that some of the lower artists In the bar aren't getting, aren't getting paid as well as they should be
1: That is something paid, that we're going to come to Because know. that's a complaint that a lot of them mm-hmm. have That they're not making any money from it I do think we should also point out though That artists saying they're not getting paid X amount or sufficiently is one thing But as anybody that works in music And claims royalties and things like that will know Artist payment from certain shows can be dwarfed by the revenue from the likes of PRS. So you can have bands playing at the barras and getting like literally 50 to 100 pounds cash, but then scooping up 800 pounds f- easily following that from their PRS royalties. So it's not really as simple as a band going, oh, they only give me 200 quid and it cost me 220 quid to get here. It's like, yeah, I'm not saying 200 quid's fair or not fair. But artists pleading poverty in some scenarios. Or maybe not telling you the full story because there are other revenue streams within that that mm-hmm. can be quite lucrative. Yeah, I mean, do artists generally tend to charge more for playing festival slots? I mean, mm-hmm. production, oh, yeah. is, production is bigger
0: and stuff like that. So, I you mean, know.
1: I can name at least one Scandinavian kind of post metal doom band that I've had dealings with, whose I think their concert fee was about two and a half, three thousand, and their festival fee was ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a massive jump. That's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, uh, another interesting thing about this is that stats show that uh, small festivals do not expect growth in the next year. So they're, they're asked to forecast, and the smaller ones really don't see there being a lot of growth in terms of ticket sales and overall revenue, or at least in terms of profit. What is markedly different is that the big festivals all expect big rises in their profit consistently. So there's there's a, there's a widening gap there. The small festivals are to some extent struggling and the big festivals are prospering quite a bit and expecting to continue to grow. Primavera expanding to multiple cities yeah. Glastonbury getting bigger and bigger and bigger each year Adding mm. other stages, so on well, um, You know, before the pandemic Festivals were falling out of the calendar anyway
0: Because the organisers couldn't afford to keep them going
1: 85% of uh, festivals got cancelled in 2020
0: I know that Yeah, and, but I mean There was a downward turn before that You know, Sonisphere being a really big example Of, of the big, of a bigger rock festival Which actually would do it across Europe And not just in Britain But the, mm. Brit- the British one was just canned you know, and they still do it in some places in Europe.
1: Well, um, actually, that's also interesting because we've got some demographic splits in different territories, uh, which might shine a light on that. Um, you'd actually mentioned before we first spoke about doing this about uh, social media, and I found a statistic that actually said that 68% of festival organisers say they are basing their bookings partly or substantially on online statistics and social media trends. You're doing that as well, aren't you? When you're booking bands, right? That's all I do Yeah Yeah I just
0: book the top 10 That's it So I can give a little bit of further context to that uh, One of the guys I was on a stag with Liam Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's listening He works for a Not drunk when firing a gun Not drunk when firing a gun Just drunk at all other times Um, He works for a a big radio company Conglomerate Mm -hmm. In the UK And obviously the one that you sleep well (laughs) at night Liam I mean he's just moved to that He actually worked in independent radio for a long long time But he kind of felt as though he'd hit a, a career ceiling but I mean that's That's a decision to make I guess More security I suppose He uh, He says that obviously like One of the things that radio stations want to do Is like They want to bring in Younger audiences right mm-hmm. First of all What they're doing for DJs Is they're usually Looking at influencers with big numbers People that already have an audience mm-hmm. Making them DJs And then counting on that audience Or A lot of the time They'll be Playing songs on the radio um, that
1: why, are, why have we not been approached then?
0: they are not well, they're, We're they're, incredibly influential <laughs> uh, We are yes And um, But one of the things They're also doing Is like a lot of Their playlists Are kind of For for, for commercial stations Not so much the BBC Because they'll play anything And that's good That's why the BBC radio Is pretty good Because they've they've got A lot of stations They'll play a lot of Different things Which are commercial They just will not touch Um, A lot of the songs They're playing Are just what's big In TikTok just now Or big in media And in sync A good example Of an old song Is obviously Running up that hill (laughs) Point. From Stranger Things, but mostly whatever's big in TikTok is what's getting put in the radio just now. So, social media drives a large part of that industry, So and all, all of the music industry. So, it's really not surprising to, to think that 68%, that figure, I mean, that doesn't surprise me in the
1: slightest. Um, it, it, what is interesting is, though, that a quarter said they do not consult online stats at all. Whether or not that's entirely true, I guess we can sort of take it with a pinch of salt that maybe they somewhat consult them or are aware of them, but they're not basing it on that. And there's also Quite likely, a kind of old guard of bookers in there that just refuse to change their methods. It's like oh, it's just how I've always done it. And maybe certain genres aren't as dependent on that. You know, the folk festivals and stuff like that as well. Maybe they're not as reliant on that. Yeah. Um. But what is certain is that the availability of music data analytics has is, is meant it's increasingly been used to reduce the level of financial risk in terms of booking. You know, versus sales and returns. So. The more sophisticated the software, the aggregators of all this data from all around the world. It's not like you can beat the bookies, but you can certainly bet on fairly safe horses that are going to turn certain amounts. You know, it's, it's like getting an actor into a film. You know, you know the stats, you know how their films perform. Well, this guy doesn't get the biggest numbers, but he's a safe pair of hands. So mm. we might not make as much as a breakout hit, but we will certainly be very unlikely to lose X. So a lot of the bills are also kind of being determined by that. Um, And that is totally analytics driven Mm -hmm. Bookings by genre This was really interesting So they actually ended up analysing 9,651 Booked artists at these 330 festivals that they covered 36.3% were electronic 16% were rock 12.7% pop Only 11.5% hip hop Only 5% metal Which I found quite surprising 3% country And 2% punk The rest of the odds Made up things like folk And kind of Mm. more esoteric genres And stuff like that Um, European acts Accounted for over 70% Of all the electronic bookings And this is interesting Rock acts mostly come from the USA 33.8% And the UK 25% So a quarter of rock acts Come from the UK Remember that because we'll come back to that Uh, Non-male acts and mixed bands Mixed gender bands uh, Only make up 24 of the 100 most booked artists The most booked acts Now I sent you a name earlier on Because I I just felt a wee bit mischievous I was Mm. like Mark please listen to this before the show tonight Mm. So um, Of the electronic acts in 2022 (laughs) The most booked Was uh, someone called Timmy Trumpet Mm -hmm. Uh, An Australian guy An absolute shitshow Like nightmare fuel Frankly, absolute nightmare fuel Did you have a wee listen? I did not, sorry you <laughs> fucking lucky bastard you didn't listen <laughs> It is utterly fucking hellish Hellish like the donkiest, stinkiest bottom of the barrel, like club music, with a guy who occasionally plays a trumpet and just has a face you would not tire of punching. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing Craig's Very familiar with this guy <laughs> Big in Australia um, So he was the most Booked electronic actor Of 2022 With Indie That was quite interesting It turned out that Fontaine's DC And Turnstile Are the most Booked mm. bands My friend Sally Says she knows you Got a funny Point of view Says you've got away with murder Maybe once I Yeah, Tongue and punk band, so that's interesting. Mm. Um, those two bands were joint first. Idols were second. A band called Grandson were third.
0: Yeah, another moment passed. Look at how we both grown up fast. Think about it, and I get whiplash. Think about it, and I get whiplash. Keep moving, don't know what's not the same as it was before. Don't know how I'm gonna take much more. Don't
1: know how I'm gonna. Minuskin that fucking monstrosity uh, were fourth inhaler gorillas wolf Alice King Gizzard and the Lizard wizard and Nick cave and the bad seeds all came in between 13 and 15. Uh, in pop music glass animals with the top in 2022 sometimes
0: all I think about is you Late nights in the middle of
1: Girl in Red was second Girl in Red's an interesting one because Girl in Red we actually spoke about in the White Town episode she's a bedroom project from I think Norway who became really really successful she she made a lot of festivals last year Bia mm. do you know them? I've never, never heard of them they're getting booked all over the place Uh, and Phoebe Bridgers, as well, was in the top four. Of she is classed, Uh Hip hop. Megan D. Stallion uh, is at the very top of the hip hop ranking. She played 25 of the, fe- the biggest festivals, and she was also the most booked individual artist overall from any genre of 2022. Dear fuck, nigga, still can't believe I used to fuck with oh, you popping playing playin' bees cause I ain't playing to be stuck with your damn. I see you still kick it with them odd bitches. And the only reason that your goofy
0: ass got bitches. Some them hoes wanna look like me. Bitch most
1: likely. That's tag talk, baby. That's it's interesting though that only twenty-four of the top one hundred were female or mixed, yet she's the top of mm-hmm. the pile. Um something called Jack Harlow was second. Home for the holidays. My friend pulled me to the side like, did you hear about Marcus? R. Marcus? Yeah, R. Marcus. A bunch of girls say he raped him in the bag of some target. They say he drove him back there in his car. and uh, then Little Sims, third. Uh, and then there was people like ASAP Rocky, Princess Nokia, who Dave had a, on this show, five years ago or something like that? Head of the curve. Uh, Polo G, ch- uh, Channel Trez, uh, Ash Nico, C. Tangana. <laughs> I always feel like I'm reading out the credits list At the end of a, a bad movie when I do that um, Festival proportion by genre uh, The US is the biggest festival hotspot with 76 of the 330 top festivals That were analysed by that group Most of them are electronic Followed by hip hop uh, 16 of them pop. The US is also the only country music festival hotspot in the world. There are exceptions, but obviously it's the main one. This was what I thought was really interesting. The UK is the second biggest festival hotspot, and the main genre is pop, not indie. It's totally, totally biased in favour of pop music in the UK. When you see it represented, they've got various visual kind of representations of this, you realise how disproportionate. Our fixation on pop festivals is Especially when you then go back To the fact that the UK provides 25% of the world's Current festival gigging rock bands And so when you're talking about Sonosphere and stuff like that It seems to be that there isn't as much room In the UK market for big rock and yeah. punk and metal festivals Compared to other countries We are mired and pop festivals—almost half of them are pop festivals in this country—and uh, so I, I thought those stats were, were quite interesting. I wouldn't have thought that about the UK. I would have thought we were a really indie-heavy country for that, but no, apparently not. I wonder. I wonder what the class is a pop festival. Transmit. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, at the, the lines will be blurry. It will be where the predominant bias uh, lands, you know. So there will be. I mean, Transmit does have rock acts on it, but the bill may have thirty overtly pop projects and then six rock acts but it's a pop festival likewise you'll have hip hop Mm. performers on at Glastonbury loads of them but they're not making up the bulk of the programming Mm -hmm. and Glastonbury is probably quite, I would say Glastonbury is an indie festival, I'm guessing it's an indie festival Um, but yeah we seem to have a a fascination with pop festivals here. It's very interesting So yeah I, I guess with all that data out of the way, it kind of brings us on to the talking points. They're not really in any particular order, but uh, the first one i like to bring up, now this might not mean a lot to people from outside the UK, in fact it might not mean a lot to people from outside of Scotland, but it, it's... I it not mean a lot of people in Scotland either. <laughs> possibly. Uh, but it's relevant. So, Dune the Rabbit Hole mm-hmm. is was a festival uh, in central Scotland. It actually began in a little town called Dune, which is really close to where I, was, where I grew up. And it sort of moved around as so many festivals do. It has rolled up its affairs that, up, times. <laughs> multiple times. Multiple uh, times, but very publicly two weeks ago. And basically, what's happened is that Doing the Rabbit Hole has sold thousands and thousands of tickets for this year, has folded and released a statement uh, blaming a, a union called Beck2, which is the performance arts. Union Mm -hmm. um, and advised People who'd bought tickets to go and speak to Their bank or their credit card companies but getting a Refund that it it wouldn't be coming From the festival. Why? The festival claims that is because It was forced To spend the money that came In from tickets in advance and so Therefore there is no money left with Which to refund the purchasers Of tickets. Now doing the rabbit Hole has had a consistent pattern Of debt for years Uh, They've had rollovers on tickets, people losing money. Some blame was attributed to overly ambitious booking at the festival, going for names that ultimately the ticket sales didn't justify, because it used to be a very bespoke, very kind of Mm family-orientated festival, and it it expanded to bring in much bigger acts, you know, bands like Slayford Mods and stuff, started showing face at it, and there were some concerns about that. It doesn't help as well, I'd imagine, that it's run by a guy called Craig Murray, and Craig Murray was actually, I think, in jail this time last year, he's the guy who exposed the identities of the woman who had alleged sexual assault against Alex Salmond. Um, and he, the former First Minister of Scotland, just yeah, for people who don't know. Alex Salmond, pretty forgettable human being. Um, But Craig Murray was kind of embroiled in that. He was embroiled in a number of things. He was also when we caught messaging John Sweeney, the war correspondent who's in Ukraine, funnily enough, Offering to send them loads of money uh, back in February 2022 when the war broke out. So it's a strange thing. I think Murray's dad was perhaps a war correspondent and that's something to do with the, the, the relationship there. But really odd guy, quite a, an outspoken guy. Uh, he obviously says, we did everything here to try and help the music scene. Everything we've done was with the best of intentions you know, the union fucked us by insisting that we pay our bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bear in mind, there are years worth of people that haven't been paid, yep. including the Acts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a, a big part of it this year was a lot of the Acts insisted on getting paid up front. And then a lot of the service providers insisted on getting paid up front. And therefore, they're claiming that the money they paid up front from the tickets, now that they've folded, that money's gone, so they can't refund the, the punters. Huh. Who knows? But, I mean, the the company was effectively rolled up previously and just seemed to be set up again by the same people in a slightly different name it's not the only festival to have that happen to it so in the uk alone we had temples which was quite a high profile one that was kind of like much edgier hardcore and stuff i know for example that the band converge who played at temples and then we got paid by temples oh, wow. or at least the last time i spoke to them they hadn't if that's the case now you know feel free to get in touch um and you also had Altamoros Parties mm-hmm. Altamoros Parties was a kind of series of festivals That would take place in these holiday camps And then also they would have some inner city things In the lakes of London And it was always very edgy It would be curated by Shellac or Mogwai or Sonic Youth It would get somebody to create it and pick the lineup. Even people like Stuart Lee and Matt Groening Curated lineups for that festival But ultimately it seemed that they were also doing that thing Where they were trying to sell tickets for next year To pay debts that had been hanging about for years and they were running out of road and again that folded one of my good friends Jason who was in a band at the time had bought tickets for the next one and then lost that money they folded and the money vanished and that was it it's like a
0: pyramid scheme so basically you keep bringing more people on board to to give you money to pay the people that you owe money to and eventually you just like you say you run out of road yeah probably not deliberately or maliciously done in
1: the case of these festivals but the tactics seem weirdly similar. Well, the only way you could recover from that is if you expected growth, because otherwise you would constantly be chasing debt. So you would have to predict festival growth so that, for example, let's say two years later, you would make 120% of what you made previously, and therefore could put some into the debt and some to you know start to recover. But the thing is, as that study showed, the small festivals aren't growing. So they're offsetting future sales against the debt, but yet they must know that there is no indicator that they're going to grow those sales or profits, and therefore all you're doing is kicking the can down the road. And in fact, it seems like it's actually accumulating. The longer you go, the debt. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the bad reputation. Not to mention the disruption to bands and performers. And let's remember all the people that work there, because that's one of the big things. Like the people that work there were getting fucked out of money because they're not the ones with a huge platform. You know, if you too doesn't get paid, you hear about it. You two have got plenty of outlets and places to complain. But if you're working at a bar for five days, cleaning up sick and helping people into ambulances and stuff, and then you don't get paid either, who do you tell? People are just like, well, too bad.
0: Yeah. It seems to me it's probably a case of them... Projecting growth and business plans In order to get money To run that festival But then Never really quite Getting there Because the acts Maybe are more expensive Than they'd hoped Or there's insurance To pay Or they've not Calculated their overheads Correctly or something Like that I mean there will be I'm sure there's a reason That there's some bad maths Involved somewhere Yeah But to
1: do it multiple times it's, it's kind of like chasing a bet isn't it yeah oh i just i just need another loan to get myself right i can mm. feel i've got a big win coming it's like but the big win wasn't coming yeah and that's multiple festivals now that have gone the same way in the uk mm. doing the rabbit hole as i say for years now people have been a bit skeptical about the finances of it and it just was. It felt like the most predictable thing in the world when I saw that announcement. I mean,
0: it sucks. It must suck. For, it must suck for the people that run it as well. I mean, I don't think they're they're probably not horrible people,
1: right? We'd like to think the the, the people that book it mm. are definitely not horrible people. I know that the people that were trying to put on acts, but it's very speculative, isn't it? I like the, people it, I guess, that, yeah. the people that lose I mean, okay, the bands lose a lot of money But the, the, the people working there The folk that provided services The joiners and the fucking people taking your shit away And, you know, all that stuff Like, If they don't get paid, there's no recourse They're just fucked That's mm-hmm. it Anyway, um, Blastonbury Let's look at that for a second So, I've written... Glastonbury class and its problematic New Age issues at the top of my notes here I think that's probably the first thing that is worth mentioning And I know you'd kind of brought this up as well Is, is Glastonbury middle class? Yes, is that, always been That's sort of the perception, right? Mm. It's the middle class festival
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it becomes a pseudo city, doesn't it, really For that whole three mm-hmm. days, four days, whatever you very rarely see working class acts playing it as well, but we've we've kind of we've spoken about this before. Maybe it's been more than since COVID because a lot more class, a lot more acts
1: are working class. I I, I would um, think that that might just be the fact, though, that so few high profile acts like charting acts are working class. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, we've covered that before. I mean, it, even way back in the early two thousands, at one point, it was something like eighty four percent of acts had had a private education versus seventeen percent of the population who did a private yeah. education. So. I think you could say that Probably make a case That Glastonbury was actually given A fair representation of the charts And it's simply the fact That there is a dearth Of working class people in music Mm -hmm. That is is showing up When you look at that bill Yeah Um, I think um, 340 quid a ticket Is
0: quite expensive Plus booking fee Plus I know you can pay these up And you can use You can let Ticketmaster Let you pay in X amount Installments and, and stuff And that's really good For a lot of people Particularly working class people Who just don't have that kind of money Lying around to spend Immediately but the way that it's pitched, the ticket price, you just know who it's for, really, right? Ultimately.
1: I mean, Tells it, it, you
0: half the story, at least.
1: I'd, see, the thing is, I don't want to strawman them, and if they were here, I think they would probably point out that, for example, Kiss at the Hydro is nigh on £150 a ticket. Yeah, but that's not for one-class people either, then. Well, there you go. But that scales up. So if you're going to see dozens and dozens of bands, including like Elton well, it makes It does make sense. Yeah. The guarantees are going to... The fee needs to be high to yeah. justify and the And to them it makes sense as well. When they're articulating it, they're going, oh, well, Kisses for £150. So you're seeing Elton John, Arctic Monkeys and Guns N' and Roses. Roses for £340. I think that's very fair. And it's like, well, when you put it like that, it is. Except £150 isn't fair to fucking start with, let's be honest. And... £340 Plus all the costs Of getting there Plus all the costs Of staying there For three and four days There's a lot of overheads To that There are a lot of other costs In there Mm. It's a huge undertaking Per person It's a fucking huge undertaking
0: Yeah That's that's just for the regular camping If you want to have A little bit more Then you're going to have to pay more For better camping And where you stay on site And It's
1: funny you say that Because I've got a statistic About Primavera That will make your Fucking toenails curl mm -hmm. It is frightening
0: uh, so yeah i mean you're right You shouldn't straw man and in yeah, certain senses it will be of value because i guess you're also getting the experience of being at the festival and all the independent traders are at glastonbury unlike a lot of other places you know i think there is like actually places that traders can go up and like, actually sell their wares and all that you know it's mm. i mean it does feel as though it's more like a city you know there are various different things to do at any time of day and things to buy and, and places to see and things and all that. It's, the actual festival itself I don't know anybody that's ever actually went, I don't think.
1: Um, I, know, I know a few people that went this year. I know, I know from booking that a lot of people I was speaking to about shows in Glasgow were like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go this year, I'm actually going to Glastonbury. And I was like, wow, this is more than I remember, you know, in terms of receiving that answer in past years. It seems like there were quite a few people down there. Now, you mentioned traders, independent traders actually for me one of the one of the things that puts me off I've never been to Glastonbury and I don't see myself going is that some of those traders actually let's let's call them peddlers. Let's let's look at a wee bit at what they're peddling because I personally fucking hate festivals with that air of new age Being at a festival And going by Palm reading tents And crystal tents And Mm -hmm. psychics And mad shit, I hate it And Glastonbury Is is the king of that It is absolutely Part of the the Branding the, Mm -hmm. The acid Tie dye Sort of thing Somerset Is the UK's In fact I think it's potentially Europe's, but certainly the UK's capital for pagan and new age movements. I mean, if you go there, if you go around the villages, if you go into Glastonbury itself, let alone the surrounding villages, there are so, so many organisations and groups and little quasi-religions and sects and retreats and meditation groups and health spas with very dubious methodologies and beliefs.
0: Um, That aspect of it doesn't bother me so much because you're going to get that everywhere you go. Glastonbury, it's so built into the brand though. Yeah, it totally is and you can take it or leave it. I suppose when you go there, I don't think don't think anyone's going to get their mind changed when they're there. You would, you would
1: sensible people anyway. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know if I'm as optimistic as you about that. Yeah. Well, I'm never going to go either, so it's, it's <laughs> totally irrelevant to me. Um, sticking with Glass We'll get to a list of a few interesting takeaway points, but I think a couple of these deserve like going into you in a little bit more detail. And the first one I want to look at again, I'm not sure how many people will be familiar with it, but feel free to go up and have a look at it online. Is uh Billy Nomates and uh, her poor reception and the ensuing fuss about that? No is the greatest resistance. No to your nothing existence. No is a walk. No. Well, don't think it looks better um so this was one of the topics that reverberated across the weekend of Glastonbury like she, so Billy Nomates her real name is it? Tor Maries Tor Maries Maries. Um, She is an alternative musician I think is probably the best way to describe it I think she's from Leicester but I think she's based In and around Bristol She played on Friday at Glastonbury uh, And basically she performed along the backing track She did a sort of self karaoke thing It was just her very normally dressed Shoeless, dancing about On an empty stage to her tracks And singing, I will say singing really Pretty well uh, given how much Dancing she was doing go then I don't think you should stay. It's been a uh, the performance was poorly received overall now there were people there that are huge fans Billy Mates already has a sort of fairly solid fan base but it met with a lot of criticism right now I want to first of all preempt this by saying I have no axe to grind against Billy No Mates whatsoever. I think she's fine. I don't think she's great, but I definitely don't think she's bad. I think some of the the songs themselves are actually really pretty decent. I watched the performance. Given what she was doing, she did a good job of it. Given that she went on stage herself with absolutely no production value really at all. That was actually kind of bold and she sort of executed it, I think, reasonably well, but I think it was really just the decision to do that that really rubbed people up the wrong way. Um, she's since requested that the BBC remove all of the footage from all of other platforms. Now, they haven't actually done that because you can still go on, for example, YouTube and watch it. <laughs> She also released a statement uh, in light of all of the negative feedback saying, uh, I know it's not for everyone what I do. I know lots of people don't rate me, but the level of personal abuse on that public page is too much. There will be no more shows after this summer. You wouldn't stay in a workplace that did this to you. Why should I? So she's basically announcing her intention to quit on the back of the criticism she received. And that doesn't entirely add up to me. Uh, For a number of reasons. Uh, I think my initial reaction was sort of kind of compassionate, but the more I sort of sat in it and thought about it, the more uh, a lot of questions and doubts started bubbling up about that. Performing and having a negative reception to a performance in front of a fucking enormous crowd of very diverse tastes is not the same as working in an abusive office environment or an abusive school environment or an abusive anything environment. It's, It's different. There's there's a performance aspect you It's a false dichotomy Yeah, it's a false dichotomy um, The abuse is obviously utterly pish patter Nobody is fucking condoning that Nobody's saying, oh come on, just go on. But Nobody's saying that, right? The, but the internet is full of that shit That's a very redundant statement But the internet is fucking full of that shit Any fucking video, anything is full of that shit, right? Um, The level that she faced may well have been higher than normal, but I think that's partly because Glastonbury is higher profile than most things, especially around about that time. And is there a misogynist aspect? I'd frankly be fucking amazed if there wasn't a misogynist aspect because it's the fucking internet. And that is not in any way seeking to excuse that as like, but misogyny on the internet is not fucking headline news. Mm -hmm. I think it absolutely needs to be called out. You absolutely need to make it clear that you think that's unacceptable. But this level of reaction to it and the way it's been portrayed... I mean, let's take another, maybe it's a slightly unfair dichotomy as well, but... Any band that's ever opened for Iron Maiden knows what it's fucking like Mm -hmm. to get a negative reception. There are bands that go on tours constantly knowing that their entire experience will be 95% of that crowd fucking heckling them and bottling them. I mean, Dillinger Escape Plan, for example, when they undertook the system of a down tour way back, I would say those stats were probably accurate. 95% of that fucking crowd couldn't have wanted them to fuck off more. They weren't there to do that. They were there to get through to the, baby the 5% of the crowd that were like, what's this? Mm. This is fucking pretty exciting. What the fuck is this? This is edgy as fuck. That was what Dillinger Escape Plan were doing that for. They weren't doing it for the 95, and they weren't doing it because they expected everybody to either like it or stand there quietly and politely and wait until they'd finished. They were up there being confrontational, doing something that was sort of challenging, and hoping that from that they would extract people... That were open minded, that were into something a bit more extreme, and take them on a journey forward with them as a band. And I think it actually worked really well for Dillinger Escape Plan doing that. From what I'm seeing from the reaction to the Billy No Mates thing, I'm not saying her specifically, but the people around her voice voicing all this concern, and it's a lot of people, seem to be looking for some kind of frictionless process. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I, I would actually dispute the suggestion that Billy Nomates is is groundbreaking in the first place and that's not to say she's not good but I don't think it's groundbreaking at all but edgy or pioneering art is intended to be provocative, surely that's the whole fucking point of it, performing groundbreaking stuff will always carry a risk and it's about breaking barriers and it's 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 more than that, it's about converting people, it's about rubbing up against people in a way that they're not comfortable with and then maybe sort of winning some of them over. Fucking hell, Jesus Lizard, probably my favourite band in the world. The first record I bought by them, I took it back to the shop in disgust. I was like, what the fuck is this bullshit? American Cycle, one of my favorite books. first time I read it, I fucking threw it out because I thought it was so disgusting mm-hmm. you know it you 're challenging people and that 's not always a very fucking pleasant experience. Yeah. you know what I mean hostility and criticism i think it 's not just inevitable but it 's actually a function of that enterprise of doing something challenging and original and worthwhile. In terms of like people's knee-jerk response to this performer not having a band on stage, right, that is a pretty purell fucking reaction, right. And nobody is saying that bands are necessary for an artist to seem valid or like good value. No, no serious person would would claim that. I did stumble across a pretty interesting discussion specifically about the reaction to Billy Nomates and it was on um, Gear News, you know, the the website for like engineers and pedals and tech and stuff like that. A called Bob Malkowski of that site was interviewing a guy called Eric Morris, and Eric Morris is the guy that's in charge of the sort of backing tracks for Lady Gaga and Nicki Minaj and people like that. And Bob Malkowski was saying, uh, for me, the Billy No Mates Glastonbury set was a bit of a watershed moment for the use of backing tracks. Up until that point, I feel there's always been some sort of distraction or smoke and mirrors surrounding the use of backing tracks live. There might be someone pretending to DJ on stage or perhaps playing keys to give the illusion of a live musical performance. And yet Billy Nomate's performance was just tore on stage with just her songs, her vocal and our performance to sell the show. And Eric replies, most artists are doing exactly the same thing. They just have more diversions and distractions, unquote, on the stage to hide that they are guilty of exactly what another artist has been torn down for. Yeah. And I actually think that represents a very good point, that she faced an opportunity to highlight how honest she was being and that there's dozens of people at Glastonbury alone doing the exact same fucking thing, but pretending that they're not doing the exact same fucking thing. I've told you before how sceptical I am that Perturbator was performing live when I saw Perturbator, but the stage was covered in fucking synths and Perturbator was certainly pretending to be playing those fucking synths. Um,
0: Think about... um Kanye West and Kendrick Lamar mm. How was she, she received by the crowd at the
1: time? Look warm, I think the, Some of them were really into it But then again, she's not a major, major, major act You know, you, when you watch the crowd for a number of those kind of acts at Glastonbury The front ten rows might be quite animated And then the people at the back will be talking And occasionally clapping between songs and stuff It wasn't a hellish reaction yeah. The hellish mm. reaction seemed to be from viewers and stuff I mean, the people at Glastonbury are in the sun And they've had a few jars And they're pretty cheerful anyway So as I say I I think it's a missed opportunity To highlight The fact that she was really Being pretty honest About the way she was going about that Ian Brown If you do remember Got absolutely fucking hammered For this about a year ago Because Ian Brown Started touring his Like you know Stone Roses and his own stuff With just backing music And him on stage And the videos were going viral of people just filming the show. Now, effectively, they were just filming exactly what Billy Nomates performed on stage. And the reaction was fucking hellish. It probably didn't have the air of misogyny that Billy Nomates had, for obvious reasons. Um, but it was still a dreadful reaction to it. And funnily enough, the band Sleaford Mods approved the Ian Brown's performance at the time. They came out saying that his vibe was always more hip-hop. And I think that's probably unsurprising, given Slyford Mods approach to performance. Um but they were really big commentators in this um Billy Nomates thing. It was actually their reaction to it that sort of went the most viral, I think. So they'd said on Twitter, same old shit with the indie civvies, whatever that means, at that point the finger at decent artists. The Billy Nomates set on the park stage was the best from yesterday's selection. Chaotic, original and just tune after tune. Bands are fine but some people just don't need the fucking things. Right, fair enough. But I would note that that got 421 shares, more than 5,000 loves, and 650,000 views. Um, Steve Albini tweeted on it as well. Regardless that performing alone in front of people who do not get it deserves infinite respect, Billy No Mates fucking rules perils before swine. Both of those tweets given the impression that somehow there was some kind of dunce aspect to an audience that didn't enjoy what they were viewing. And you know what? That's probably the case. In a lot of cases, but just because people don't appreciate someone dancing about doing karaoke doesn't mean they're fucking idiots. Because I don't appreciate Sliferd Mods standing pressing spacebar. That's just a matter of taste. You can't fucking ad hominem attack people because they don't like something. We're not just talking about the people that maybe said really abusive things there. They're just talking about people that don't get it. Inverted commas. You don't get it, but you mean you just don't like it. I don't really like the tone of that criticism either. It's pretty easy, isn't it? So this became one of the takeaway stories of the festival, and the level of publicity on the back of it was astonishing. I mean, look at those numbers, the tweet from Slayford Mods, like I say, 650-odd thousand views. The coverage was blanket aclo- across the platforms. All the news outlets, all the papers, all the fucking online music magazines, Louder Than War, to the BBC, to the fucking Daily Mail, Daily Mail, who is Billy Nomates and what happened to her at Glastonbury and all that. Everything. Covering it Like We're fucking adding to it now We're adding to that Blanket coverage Um, I I very much doubt That any existing fans of hers Have been put off She played an okay set And they already like her And I'm sure they were Alright with it I would assume That quite a number of people Have now been made aware of her Who were not aware of her prior Um, The suggestion that she was going to quit music because of bad reviews and unpleasant online dialogue to me was astonishing. Um, The other narrative, by the way, was how she was underpaid by Glastonbury, I think that's part of the reason that it wasn't a bigger performance, she was like, I can't afford to take people on for that kind of money, and you know what, okay, fair enough, the amount of money that you get for that Glastonbury performance, you might say, right, that doesn't justify it. I just think it's quite interesting that so many people, the vast majority of people never get a Glastonbury performance. The commodification of her victimhood here started to become like a wee bit depressing. And it's not just by her, it's by all the commentators around her, all the people like coming out and sort of kind of virtue signaling how how concerned they were. I mean, I don't think she has an obligation to be anyone's champion, but it's definitely not inspiring because, as I say, the vast majority of people never get on that fucking stage, on any of those stages. And let's be honest, for Billy No Mates, her debut album was produced by Jeff Barrow. She's on Invader Records. Uh, BBC Six absolutely loved her from the start and she only came out in 2020. She's been on Joe's Holland already. She was barely off the pages of every fucking hip music blog in circular for like 24 months. She's guested with Sleaford Mods multiple times and enjoys clearly their ongoing advocacy, the advocacy of Steve Albini, the advocacy of Billy Bragg, the advocacy of like Edith Bowman and all these other musical commentators. Like, Billy, mate, music's working out pretty good, all things considered. Should you meekly accept all the online abuse? No, fuck no. Kick back by all means, call it out. But the sycophancy and things like that—it just—it really didn't sit well with me. I, I just think it's been a really odd phenomenon to emerge from that festival. Someone gets criticised and they're threatening to quit their fucking profession. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Mm. Uh, I
0: don't really know if I went to add To, that, to be honest with me, like I didn't see the performance. I don't really know who she is. There's loads of people out there that definitely prefer Or don't mind people be back in tracks playing live on uh, some big bands do it When they're playing with a band You know what, it's your performance You present it the way you present it to the public And if you don't like it then fuck them <laughs> I think maybe it's alright to be Thick and skinned and vulnerable in a particular moment When you're getting torrents of online abuse I don't think there's anything wrong with her particular reaction to that just now Saying you're going to quit music maybe Is a bit too rash, I think
1: It's really really hard to not be You know Bad actors looking to sort of misrepresent an argument uh, are really affecting how we can even discuss this, right? Because nobody is fucking... I would never go on a fucking website and horrendously abuse someone. I would certainly fucking do a podcast when I'm like, Slayford Mods are fucking shite and I can't believe I've made seven albums. But I would never go and actually personally torment somebody on a website. It's inexcusable. And I'm forced to caveat that before saying also that... I did a performance and loads of people didn't like it and they told me so. Yeah, loads of people didn't like it, but loads and loads of other people did like it and loads of new people would like it. Just be fucking cool with that. You got to play Glastonbury. Congratulations. Your career's going really fucking well considering you've not really been in the public eye more than four years and you've already been on TV and festivals and all over the fucking magazines. Like, let's try and be a bit fucking optimistic about it. I
0: mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with her being vulnerable and feeling vulnerable in that moment. Actually, If you ask me, it actually adds to her narrative as an artist and her story as an artist. I think that can be quite compelling to a lot of people. You think it's inspiring? No, I don't think it's inspiring. I think it can be compelling for, for people to know that, you know, this person's a human being and they have thoughts and feelings about things and... Yeah, I mean, I do probably think she may have overreacted a little bit And I'm not just saying that because she's a woman, by the way In case anybody's fucking, <laughs> in case anybody tries to take that tact See, I'm caveating shit as well now This is, this
1: is the, yeah, This is why the podcast ends up being so long Yeah to pad it out with so many fucking caveats
0: I mean, I think, I think I would have reacted the same way If I was a single artist, trying to do my best And feeling a wee bit ripped off by
1: Glastonbury, do you know what I mean? So, so I might, you know, know what, so might I, but I think perhaps I'm even more I'm more so critical now that I'm actually talking it through with you of the people around her who rather than saying fuck the haters doesn't matter yeah the- well you know
0: you're your manager your manager and your agent could could certainly spin it
1: and the bands and the media and the fucking onslaught of virtue signalling on social media Why'd, instead of like slagging off people that don't get it instead of suggesting that there's some kind of like normie fucking ignorance why do you just say like you know what fuck them you were great Loads of people saw it. Loads of people like you now. Stick at it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure our streams are
0: going to go up on Spotify. Absolutely, man. You know? I mean,
1: honestly, like the fucking tag was trending.
0: It is, it is that thinking, which is which is making me go? But well, I don't think I necessarily, I don't necessarily think our entire reactions is completely unjustified. Saying you're going to quit music, I think is definitely an overstatement. Uh, saying maybe I'm going to take a break for like six months, even then, I don't think that's a good idea. I would be right back on the road in two, three months' time, with the exact same fucking show, filling the academy, and be like, you know what? Fucking cunts,
1: I actually love this None of those people that wrote that stuff need to be at your show You don't they need won't them be to show. be a success yeah. uh-huh. You're already something of a success And you're only going to get bigger on the back of this Why the fuck is the reaction and the lesson to people I got criticised online, therefore I'm going to quit And you guys don't get it, you're too stupid to get it mm. Yeah <sighs> uh, Point four Are festivals irrelevant for newer acts, Mark? It could be <laughs> Point five <laughs> <laughs> Point, um, So uh, you, you sent me some really interesting Notes on this Obviously we'd spoken about nostalgia tours mm-hmm. on, on previous episodes In fact we even did an episode on like ideal festival lineups And yeah the nostalgia thing Is a big part of Remember that statistic I said earlier about how Britain's obsessed with pop mm-hmm. Festivals Well these festivals are a big part of that statistic Like These nostalgia fests, This fucking like ream And the, the, the New Radicals And M-People and that kind of stuff that is actually accounting for a large part of that number. But you're right when you when you observe that a lot of the big festivals are now sort of doing that anyway. I mean, Glastonbury's always had these big headliners, Just right?
0: The legend slot, right? I, legend mean, slot, yeah. I guess, I guess that sometimes over the last decade or so they've had acts come in that are not obvious nostalgia plays. Can you, West? Mm-hmm. Stormzy, Kendrick Lamar, Stormzy, you know, Dave I think was a, was was quite high profile one of them as well. Um and Beyoncé
1: and stuff as well. Yeah, you know, as much as a fucking canny kind of standard like yeah. it's it's contemporary mega pop.
0: Yeah, I mean there was no I mean the Arctic Monkeys are contemporary in as much as they've just released their, I think they released their album last year Have they got a new one coming out. Uh, they just they released The Car last year. Yeah. Travel size champagne cock pops and was endless... But if you look at most rock festivals, for example, there'll, there'll be no new names on there that will ever shock you. You know, there'll, no, nobody will be suddenly graduating to headliner. There'll be people that are working up the bills. And I think it's the same for most festivals. I, I think that. They need to sell. We've just we've just spoke earlier on about how they need to sell tickets. You yeah. know that the the costs, the margins are getting slimmer every single time, and, and the artists are going to be asking for more, particularly the bigger ones because they're more sensible. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, they know that they need more money to do their shit. You know, what I mean, it just has to happen.
1: So, it's, you see, going back to what you're talking about there, actually, Fontaines D.C. Uh, and Turnstile being the two most booked indie uh, rock acts of the previous year, neither of those bands our main stage headlining bands. Do you see either of those? I mean, it's certainly Fontaine's DC, decent band, but I do not see them, maybe I'll be wrong, but I do not see them as being a sort of legacy band in the future where they've built up such a catalogue of like mega hits that they can then go and replace, you know, Guns N' Roses. Or, mm. or I mean, where is the... The next generation of that coming through,
0: yeah, exactly. That's that. I guess that's the key question, you know. I think to answer the original question, I'm not entirely sure if if festivals are relevant for new acts, but I think the I think the festival as we know it is probably becoming irrelevant in and of itself. The format that we have has is, is got a shelf life. If you're having if these people are going to die sooner than the people that are underneath them, right in the bow, it's just going to happen. Mm. The format that as it exists is kind of mired in the past. It's mired in this old school formula of for how a festival should be run Whereas the new new music acts need to market themselves And promote themselves in vastly different ways From what the old acts used to do mm-hmm. Which means they end up never attaining the escape velocity That's needed to become a huge act
1: It's also about catalogue though as well because, Yeah I mean
0: catalogue, I mean, that's what I was going to say It was my next point that Some of the acts that have attained that escape velocity Are Bring Me Horizon who are now in their 7th record mm-hmm. um, Biffy Clyro Biffy Clyro who have done 6 or 7 I think Ghost I think Ghost are probably Coming up to that From a rock perspective uh, I mean I would say Muse Muse yeah I mean Potentially yeah. Muse became stadium for us Before they became Headliners of festivals Which is I think is quite interesting Yeah But you know in America They do it slightly differently Than they do it here You know um, The examples that I'd given to you Were Coachella had Some of the biggest art acts On Spotify In the world Playing Like Bad Bunnies and like five albums The first couple were in Completely in Spanish He's a massive crossover act In America one of, the, one of the biggest streamed acts in America
1: He's big, the biggest
0: Latin musician Yeah, biggest Latin music. musician in the yeah. world, yep The um, evening people of Frank Ocean Who did one weekend to Coachella this year Didn't do the next weekend Blink 22 had to step in at the last minute to do it because he had technical issues the first time he did it, the first weekend, only got two records. Black Pink—they're a Korean act. Never fucking heard of them. Only got two albums.
1: And you
0: know, I name if you Sam Fender doing transmit this year. He's also only got two records, so I guess there is some space. For acts, but I mean, they've reached an escape velocity where they're so super massive that they can justify it. You know,
1: so what they're doing is they're rocketing up the lineups. They're Mm. they're just flying up to the top with two albums, three albums under their belts. But what they're not doing, I mean, this is one thing that watching Elton John underlined. I was like, there's no way Elton John can do a headline set for two fucking hours and still be doing hits. And you were like, holy fucking shit, he absolutely did. Like he's got a lot of songs. Mm. I'm not a big Elton John fan. Seems like a lovely guy Don't really give a shit about most of his music But fuck me man there were songs he didn't play And I was like well, what is going on here man This guy's got so many tunes and I think when you look at the depth of the catalogues Of some of these older acts mm. That's what I think's kind of missing I'm not saying that some of the bands currently aren't as big In and of a moment But there have been like hotshot bands all the way through history But alongside them There have been bands slowly amassing massive catalogues And there seems to be a lot less of that I mean the 1975 As a casual Listener To pop music I couldn't I couldn't off the top of my head Sing one of their songs I would probably know A couple if I heard them mm. But then Same. They are really far up bills right now. Where are they going to be in like 25 years?
0: Yeah, I mean, there'll really be acts like that who may stick who may stick the course. Um, we can ask the same question about bands in the 90s as well. I think commodification of music and music marketing has probably had quite a lot to do with the uh, The thing is that, that bands like you know,
1: R.E.M. were still doing that big, big catalogue thing. Yeah. I mean, Radiohead have done the big, big catalogue thing. U2 did the big, big catalogue yeah. thing. These bands could easily play for two hours and still be yeah. dropping tunes. There's a lot of other acts that are really far up these bills. And I'm sure, actually, if you could go back to the 80s, it was probably the same. You know, there are loads of big one hit and two hit wonders from, from that era. But I'm just not sure that I'm seeing the same amount of building towards the future. If festivals are still working at this scale in 30 years time Who's yeah. going to be that mm-hmm. uh, granddad slot, you know
0: Well that, that kind of underlines the, the point I'm trying to make About how the the, the festival itself is probably an out of date model We've spoke about it earlier on The music industry has now turned more and more and more towards Artists with big hits Younger listeners are listening to playlists So they're not really listen to albums We've always said that But it's even more apparent now in the streaming age some big artists I guess and TikTok and all that are not even going to be bored about playing live and if they are they might even go the billion metres route and unless they keep churning out consistent hits, which I guess is possible for if you've got loads of money and you get to like a Rihanna level there's going to become a point where there's loads of really great artists kicking about for a summer and then they're gone Yeah, you can't sustain an entire festival Season on a small group of acts. That's why. That's why. I guess that's why these big festivals are chucking in the legacy acts because there's like, well, there's a, there's not enough, not enough acts that have reached the level that we need to get to to justify the cost of this ticket.
1: That was always my biggest you criticism know? of Billie Eilish was that what Billie Eilish came out doing, or what she and her brother came out doing, was interesting. But there was no point at which I got the sense That they were building towards a sustainable career It was like, let's absolutely Shoot this full of steroids as quick As possible, make as much as we can From it for a short time And then it's very likely that it's just going to get dropped Because it's very limited in terms of what it can Actually do, in terms of the scope for Growth musically and stuff like that And that's just uh, emblematic Of an approach now They're not really building towards it We always, going all the way back, Prince Alarm (laughs) Used the example of Prince's manager saying that, you know, Warner spent an absolute fucking fortune on those first three albums just trying to develop this artist because they knew there was an entire career there waiting to happen, as opposed to drop them after one album, right, they had one hit, but get rid of them now. That's very Mm short-sighted. You know, these, these bands sell records for decades. Queen sell records up the yin yang for decades. ABBA sell records for decades. I find it very, very, very fucking hard to imagine that Billy Eilish will still be shifting, you know, seven figures in
0: 2050. Mm. Well, it's just, it's, it's old mentality from the 90s on steroids now, isn't it? It's get get millions of views on TikTok, get millions of streams within, like, six months if you're on a major, and we'll probably have you for another six months, maybe. You know, artists can do it themselves now, I guess, and I suppose a lot of these bedroom producer artists, if we don't sign a major labels, are never going to see a festival. Because they're just never going to have the infrastructure around them to pull that kind of thing off. Yeah. Even if they might be rolling in it to play festivals and to, to play big slots and festivals, you need you need to have production, uh, which is expensive. So yeah, I guess the point of that, the point I'm trying to make with that is, I think that festivals are just becoming the land of the dinosaurs, with the occasional act which might be able to keep up potentially in the future, maybe. Tacked on in in different places With a whole bunch of new acts Which will be here today, gone tomorrow
1: Maybe two hours and three hour sets will just become a thing of the past The longest set, I think In the history of Primavera Was The Cure, I think they did three hours So, you know, maybe bands Like The Cure and that will become the thing of the past And it'll just be like 40 minutes of Bad Bunny And then fucking 30 minutes of fucking Whatever and 35 minutes of whatever And just little fucking short sets With bands with small catalogs Getting wheeled out um. Okay, another one that's pretty uh, relevant to Scotland Transmit We change attack here I, I guess as folk in Glasgow prepare to go mental Both at and about Transmit Because inner city festivals cause fucking chaos But what is the overall picture here? So Transmit is effectively a reincarnation of Tea in the Park This is for the folks out with here that don't know Tea in the Park sort of started at Strathclyde Country Park Yep uh, and then moved up to, was it, no, Ballock, ba- yeah, yeah with Strathallan um, And Strathalon Castle after that Yeah, uh, so they could terrorise all the fucking uh, Endangered Birds of Prey up the there.
0: fact They actually split into two festivals didn't they There was Transmit and then there's Connect Festival as well Which they do over through in Anglovedon in,
1: yep, in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh. Um, so, One for the
0: rock and one for the pop basically
1: Yeah, well Connect is sort of pitched at a slightly older demographic Whereas Transmit is very much like Sort of 16 to 25 mm-hmm. kind of Sam Fender types Transmit is in the heart of the city. It really, really, really is right in the middle of the fucking city, um, and it is hedonism for a few days. Let's be honest. But even as a fucking curmudgeonly, doer face bastard that I am. I had to kind of acknowledge some of the figures on it because they were pretty interesting. Um, now, the stats on this are pretty old, admittedly. They were from like 2017-2018, which I think was like the first two of Transmit. But uh, Scotland apparently saw uh, the strongest growth of music tourism in the, the UK, rising from, I think it was 800,000 visitors and 17 to 1.1 1. 1 million in 18, which is 38% increase. Um, there were 100,000 attendees at Transmit uh, for that one, I believe. Which is a lot for a city like Glasgow Because Glasgow, as much as it's a high profile place With a big reputation There's really, as far as I'm aware, during the night only about 600,000 now. Mm-hmm. It's not a big, big city. There's a lot of influx of people for work that then leave again and go to the sort of peripheral towns and stuff. Um, I will say, I quoted this from the, um, the site uh, only London, the southeast and northwest of England actually brought more visitors to the country. To the country, I want to just put an asterisk there because the UK is not a fucking country. <laughs> <laughs> right. Scotland is a country, England is a country. It's semantics. Uh, I'm engaged in semantics, you're right. Um, new festivals such as uh, Summer Sessions uh, Which obviously is in Glasgow I think it was also in Edinburgh as well wasn't it uh, Were credited with helping to attract grown numbers but Summer Sessions has just Passed by the way literally two nights ago Guns N' Roses played, prior to that it was Arctic Monkeys And Muse mm-hmm. uh, The three in a row at Bella Houston Park So I mean there's, there's absolutely no Getting away from the fact that these festivals Are generating a lot of money In and around the city um, They also generate A lot of fucking chaos So I don't want to be one of these people That's sort of saying We just shouldn't do it because it's not worth the hassle But I do think the people that run them Are obviously making a lot of money from them Or trying to make a lot of money from them Um, Let's just say uh, one example was Jeff Ellis, the head honcho at DF Concerts who run Transmit he actually, he, this is a guy with a lot of fucking clout here. You know, DF Concerts has been a big news in Scottish music for a long time. Very well connected guy in the media and in the music industry, part owned by Live Nation. <clears throat> so yeah, he used his clout uh, to strongly complain about a two pound fifty environmental levy that was added by Glasgow City Council, uh, which was basically to fund up the clean operation, uh, the clean up operation following the festival. Um, and, and Jeff was complaining that this two fifty levy could uh, threaten the success of the event bearing in mind this is an event that 100,000 people in 2017-18 went to it's probably more now and this 250 thing was so objectionable he was out there in sizable publications deriding that saying that it was affecting the future of this thing I mean to be clear, tickets to Transmit for three days cost £200, or it's £85 a day. It's a £2.50 levy to help clean up the city. It was intended, I think, to, to raise about 650000 to that end. Now, Transmit deflects criticism with the economics of that it adds £10 million, purportedly to the local economy, which I don't dispute. It's a very, very big thing. It brings a lot of people to the hotels, you know, to the the, the tourism sector especially. But only in certain areas. You know, one of those areas is the pockets of Jeff Ellis and DF concerts uh, And other areas would include hotels, accommodation, the food and drinks industry, of which I'm part. And that's fair enough. Like, you see the benefits of it. You see the influx and you see the people coming out after it. And a lot of places get a lot of extra cash, a lot of extra footfall. But... The massive disruption in the cost of the cleanup and the repairs is felt by everyone, not just those benefiting it. So the cost of cleaning up. Glasgow is not just paid for by the people who ma- made money from Transmit. It's not like the bars and Jeff Ellis and DF concerts and stuff all chip in and pay for these folk to go and clean it. It's fucking people that have absolutely nothing to do with the festival. It's people that get absolutely no benefit from the festival whatsoever. It's people that have their roads closed. It's people that are paying their fucking taxes. And a big chunk of those taxes are going to clean up the mess. Yes it brings money Into the city But it's not like Everybody gets an even share Of that money That comes in That money goes To certain areas Of the city And so For them to be So fucking resistant To things like A 250 levy To clean up An inner city festival To me Just again Represented How fucking Self interested A lot of these These festivals And these people Really are I think it's very, very fucking selfish and, and short-sighted. The, people are lending you their city all their transport infrastructure, which, by the way, is fucking chaotic in and around uh, Transmit and in and around those kind of festivals.
0: You it don't, doesn't actually link up in this city to begin with. So it's fucking <laughs>
1: Exactly. You know, and then, you know you know what it's like getting a train from one of the fucking outskirts during that, right? Mm-hmm. It's fucking chaos. You are borrowing their city to make yourself a lot of money. Let's be honest, that's what's happening. Yes, there are other beneficiaries of that. But it's not equal. And I really, really dislike this attitude that somehow we should just be grateful and not expect there to be any sort of reciprocal arrangement. Oh, we're bringing all this money into your city. Well, it doesn't work as fucking simply as that. And you know that. It's very disingenuous. And there's, to some extent, an abuse of connection and contact and profile to then go out in the media and protest against this. or oh, you're threatening the future. Yet. That's a kind of blackmail. Oh, we might not run the festival anymore. We might take that ten million away from your city because you're asking us to pick up our stuff. Don't like that, man. Don't like that attitude at all. Um, we talked about Primavera. That's another big, big inner city festival. Primavera, by the way, started 2001, only eight thousand attendees. Um, it moved to that Park del Forum in 2005, and by about 2022, it was half a million people over the two weekends. As we said, it's expanding to Madrid and Barcelona, so it's probably going to go up again. Uh, Sorry, then Barcelona. It, no, but I uh, sorry, it's expanding across the two oh, cities. Okay. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. in Barcelona, but it's going to like go to like a double location. It, I think it, it used to have a Portuguese branch as well. I don't know if they still do that one. Anyone that went to it, I think last year in particular was notorious because it was with three euros for a can of water and there was a one hour queue to try and get served. I remember um, one of our regular listeners t- telling us about it. Yeah, um, a lot of people noticed that the vibe around Primavera really started to change. It became very very big clearly but also there was a tonal change in it cause it was always seen as being a bit of an alternative festival that I kind of associated it with All Tomorrow's Parties and things like that. The same kind of Nick Cave and Shellac and, and right enough Shellac I think I've played every single one but in 2018, there started to be like a tangible change, and there's a reason for that because the UKIPA companies, which is like an American private equity firm, bought a 29% stake in Primavera Sound, and they they kind of modified what the festival represented. And what you started to see was like high street retailers' outlets next to stages, you know, Mango and companies like that, like shops started having these branches represented at the festival. And uh, I mentioned there was an Iwatton statistic uh, in 2019, the highest priced ticket. Primavera Sound was two hundred and fifteen euros. It's now eight hundred and fifty. <laughs> eight
0: hundred and fifty. How do you? How do you even
1: justify that? No, admittedly, there's much cheaper tickets than that, but eight hundred and fifty is the top tier when it used to be two fifteen. It's fucking wild. It shows you how they have definitely targeted a different audience with it. It's the Coachella effect. Yeah, it's the uh, stocks and shares investment banker crowd mm-hmm. looking for their fancy holiday and great. Thoroughly depressing indeed um, I guess we could probably end on a, a couple of things that are a bit more upbeat uh, Just some of the standout moments from Glastonbury this year Did you watch any of it? Nope, I was in Krakow Aye, well there were some good bits I did see, um, I did see
0: Paradise City with Dave Grohl and Guns N' Noses We will um, come
1: on to that then
0: Mark I had a ticket for Guns N' Noses last year and, uh, and it got cancelled And I decided to get a refund
1: <laughs> Typical um,
0: Guns N' Noses style Yeah <laughs> The fact he even played in Glasgow this time it was actually quite impressive. Uh, it's honest. very off brand. Yeah, um, <laughs> his vo- his voice is fucked. The bankers obviously still play, but
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, we will come on to that at a moment. Um, I would just say I-, I was taken aback by how good Queens of the Stone Age were. <laughs> I think a lot of people were taken aback by how good they were. Um, I spoke to Ben Power. Ben was playing at Glastonbury with Editors they did a really good set actually uh, but Ben uh, opted to break from the pack who I went to see Elton John and he went to see Queens of Stone Age and says it's legitimately one of the best concerts he's probably ever seen um, Got to admire Josh Holmes' ability to keep reforming these powerhouse bands around them you know John Theodore, Troy Van Leeuwen, that guy Mikey Shoes that they've got on bass Um the set list I would say probably wasn't the best but the performance was pretty spectacular. On a side note as well uh, (laughs) I have to wonder right if you were not one of the people that went to see Queens of Stone Age and you were not one of the what looked like a quarter of a million people that went to see Elton John can you imagine being one of the people that went to see Alt J Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they were playing at the same time Nice. Fuck that for a job by the way. Hell of a clash (laughs) Talking about Elton John I was absolutely gobsmacked that he didn't perform Can You Feel The Love Tonight because you think about what that performance is there to do to get all these trolleyed people singing along in the twilight it blew my mind and even just the, the, the lyrics can you feel the love tonight it seems so tailor made i have to assume it's maybe a disney licensing thing mm. because it would have been pitch perfect for it but didn't actually do you yeah, vote so i'm sure surely you can perform it live right I honestly can't. I feel like there must be some kind of reason that he didn't do it because I can't imagine a better. I thought that would potentially be like the closing song. Mm. He did Candle in the Wind, he didn't do that. Yeah, I have, I have an, an interesting
0: Elton John story actually, which is kind of three stories in one. Um, so, you played in Glasgow and Edinburgh before you played in Glastonbury.
1: Went to the Deniston barbecue, I believe, spent 600 I think quid this on it. I
0: don't know if he did. the he go? Did he not? I don't know. I, I, that's not part of the story anyway, but I didn't know. <laughs> so,. The biggest thing for me that I heard was that uh, he likes to stay in the best hotels that he can And unfortunately one, Devonshire Gardens and Clown Eagles and all the other ones were uh, unavailable But what was available was uh, the Weiswood Hotel Playsbury Square in Glasgow right, Which he doesn't like because it's too dark um, <laughs> So the floor that he stayed on, they went in and changed all the 20 watt LED light bulbs to 120 watt LED light bulbs Now order didn't make it bright enough for him Wow, and they were also had also had a painter on standby to paint the brown bathroom white just for him. But when the, the new lights were put in, it was totally fine, so he didn't get his bathroom repainted. Imagine
1: but looking at it from the outside; it must have seemed like poltergeist was happening upstairs.
0: <laughs> but yeah, what a fucking bizarre thing to build. Like, yeah, they've got the paint, we've got the painter on standby You paint the toilet. Um, the other interesting story I heard was that the, the person I had this from was the dri- guy was driving. Driving Elton.
1: You driving Elton? Elton driving
0: Elton. Obviously, Elton John is an owner of Watford FC. He actually told Dee Dee that Brendan Rodgers was going to Celtic before the press even got a whiff of the fact it was going to happen. Because he asked him, are you, are you blue or are you green? So I came green and said, oh yeah, Brendan Rodgers is going to Celtic. And he was like, oh really? <laughs> Which is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and the final thing was, uh, he spoke to Elton John's manager and Elton John's manager. Elton John's manager said to him that Elton John has not been nervous for a gig in about 30 odd years apart from Glastonbury. Mm. But he was actually really
1: nervous for the show I can believe that
0: That's pretty sweet Yeah. Um, But yeah it's really interesting the things that you
1: learn From people that hang out with Elton John (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) Seems like a nice enough wee guy I was saying like His band are lovely as well They're all really lovely people He's got that rep for buying records in towns That he goes to and then contacting people When he likes their records and stuff That's so cool man Yeah Mm -hmm. Um, And actually he's also known Because he contacted Lewis Capaldi When Lewis Capaldi was It became known That he was struggling With Tourette's And also with the Pressures of fame And that would actually Be my next point To take away from Glastonbury this year Because he was clearly Having quite a bad time With his Tourette's On stage And I thought I I think most people Think that the audience's Reaction to it and stuff Was really really Heartwarming Uh, his reaction to it and he's since announced Time out From live performance I Haven't seen the documentary About him um, Vicky Had said that she really enjoyed it Found it really insightful I know there are mentions In it about childhood trauma Relating to the death of an aunt I personally Don't even know That that's necessary To explain The Tourette's uh, Not that I'm any kind of expert on it But The sheer fucking stress That that boy's under The the Velocity of his Rise to fame you know, how steep it's been, the demand for him and the demands put on him, they need to also be up for it because his persona is, I think, very honest. Whenever he goes on shows, he's expected to be funny. It's actually a really fucking hard thing to be, as we can testify mm-hmm. to in the show. But everyone expects Lois Capaldi to be Lois Capaldi. It's like you book him and he doesn't crack jokes as, like, booking Biffy Clyro and Simon Neil doesn't take his shirt off, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, I think that is... Unbelievably stressful, and so the fact that the guy is suffering it doesn't surprise me one bit. Um, and aye, I mean he's look, the boy's doing really well for himself, but also he's clearly struggling um, and taking time out seems like a really good shout.
0: It's great that there's awareness of that these days because you know how it would have went in the old days, you know, drugs, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, drugs, alcohol, and total self destruction. Just the management medicating him like like half of mm-hmm. the metal bands in the eighties here. Yeah, uh, another one, Rick Astley.
0: I did actually see Never Gonna Give You Up really drunk on Saturday night I actually watched it when we came in for the pub No, Sunday night when we came in for the pub in, in Krakow And yeah, he seems good partner actually
1: 80s legend has enjoyed something of a cultural renaissance Or can we call it a Rick mm mm-hmm. Dave Grohl played a part in that Rick Nasons Because obviously Rick Rowland And then they actually brought him out When they were Rick Rowland During the Foo Fighters concerts You know Dave Grohl Because obviously he has to be involved in it um, So Rick Astley played the Pyramid stage uh, Also included drumming really rather well On an ACDC cover I don't know if you saw that No <laughs> You've got to check that out um, Then he also appeared at a band called uh, Blossoms You know Blossoms for Down South uh, To do Smith's covers Where he sang with them That's but, cool Yeah that also went down really well
0: Johnny Marr was there as well She played with The Pretenders
1: the Dave Grohl Dave Grohl Came mm-hmm. out and drummed with them as well Yeah Dave Grohl, we're about to talk about him The only other thing I want to flag up is that Alex Turner absolutely fucking butchered One of my favourite Arctic Monkeys songs Cornerstone, which we gave a lot of time When we did the Arctic Monkeys episode He did that thing where a song's so familiar He came out and sort of did that Lazy Lounge version where Mm. you drag All the lyrics about 1.5 seconds Behind where they normally land So that all the flow and the punctuation Of the lyrics is completely out of sync With the song, it was fucking torturous it was torturous. I don't know why people do that. I've had this beef with a lot of artists. Mm-hmm. No! Some of us might only ever get to see this once and you're fucking shafting us with this inferior fucking version. Awful. Just don't fucking play it. Just don't fucking play it if you're going to butcher it. Anyway, to end Dave Grohl, because got to end on Dave Grohl on this podcast, <laughs> right? With Guns N' Roses on stage uh, well, with a number of people on stage but with Guns and Roses on stage Too many guitars. Anyone that follows our Twitter will also know that I was none too pleased about this. Uh, I'm an OG Nirvana fan, and uh, the Nirvana versus Guns N' Roses rivalry, I was quite happy about that. Why did that have to fucking end? Um, I mean, Kurt Cobain is on record as saying that rebellion is standing up to people like Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses were the avatar for pompous 80s LA hair metal. And Nirvana and the grunge movement and the alternative rock movement took a fucking sledgehammer to that scene. And it doesn't mean you can't still like Guns N' Roses, but I really enjoyed the fact that there was no love lost. You know, I'll be honest as well, even if it's a kind of kayfabe thing, even if it's just a fucking phony rivalry, just let us have it. Let us have it. The story about this, it was only after seeing Grohl on stage, I was like, well actually how the fuck did this develop? The whole thing came to head in 1982 apparently Axl Rose was furious because he'd been trying to get hold of Kurt Cobain to ask Nirvana to go on tour with Guns N' Roses because they wanted to kind of cash in on the cred I'd imagine He then took the hump and told the crowd at a show uh, that Cobain and Love were, I think the phrase he used, fucking junkies It's actually fairly accurate but Clearly, not intended to be too flattering. Um, then later that year, as well, 1992, at the backstage of the MTV Awards, I think Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain had made a joke about asking Axel Rose to be the godfather to Francis Bean. Mm-hmm. Um, and Axel Rose's girlfriend, who was a supermodel, I think her name was Stephanie Seymour, um, she went fucking berserk. Axel Rose turned around to Kurt Cobain and said, uh, you shut your bitch up, or I'm taking you down to the pavement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Kirk Cobain turned out to love and said, uh, Shut up, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and this is kind of the, the point where I joined, because this is like I got into Nirvana just after Kirk Cobain died, right? And this was part of that identity of rejecting certain aspects of chauvinism and machismo and, and metal and hard rock. 1993. Kurt Cobain does an interview with the Advocates in LGBT magazine. He has a quote "Axel is a fucking sexist and a racist and a homophobe and you can't be on his side and be on our side. I'm sorry that I have to divide this up like this but it's something you can't ignore and besides they can't write good music. And for me I fucking loved that. I know some of it was petty I know some of it was just Kurt Cobain being a fucking brat. But also Axel Rose was, for what it's worth fairly fucking sexist and seemingly kind of homophobic and definitely a little bit racist. So yeah, fuck Axl Rose. I always quite liked that there was a sense of otherness to that movement. It felt quite special because hair metal became the establishment. All of the big labels, all the big industry was built around that bullshit. And it was nice that they were taking a fucking axe to that. I don't think Dave Grohl ever really bought into that rivalry though. I th- he's got a couple of interviews, he's got quotes saying, uh, So Axel had been calling Kurt nonstop. One day we're walking through an airport and Kurt says, Fuck, Axel Rose won't stop calling me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think it represented something bigger. Nirvana didn't want to turn into Guns N' Roses, so Kurt started talking shit in interviews and then Axel started talking back. It went back and forth like 10th grade bullshit. Interesting thing that I didn't know was that apparently Cobain and Duff McKagan met days before Kurt Cobain. Killed himself Did you not know that? No It was uh, almost friendly circumstances Yeah it was on plane aye Yeah Mm -hmm. Cobain had been in rehab He'd escaped from rehab Mm -hmm. He'd got a plane And He was the last person To see him alive Duff Duff McKagan McKagan was at the airport Yeah Uh, Duff McKagan said that Cobain Quote Seemed happy to see him uh, And also Made a comment That he did know That something wasn't right though About the way he was acting he says we were talking about what it feels like to be going back home. Um, and that's what he said he was doing, going home. Uh, I think Duff McKagan also said that he was trying to offer Kurt a lift home, but then he'd actually just left the airport in a fucking hurry and so he wasn't able to catch him. Um, so I do know that Duff McKagan was from Seattle, right? So he was he was pretty friendly with like like some Mud Honey and mm-hmm. a lot of the bands on that scene. But I definitely, by the time he was in Guns N' Roses, there was no fucking love lost with Nirvana, and I think Duff McKagan was particularly furious about some of the things that Cobain had said in a couple of interviews. So that was the first time I think they met in civil terms. But yeah, interesting. Another little tidbit: that after the news of Kurt Cobain's suicide broke, Matt Sorum of Guns N' Roses was one of the first people to phone Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl had said that after Kurt died, one of the first phone calls I got was with Matt Sorum. He left a message and said, "Man, I'm really sorry, and I hope you're doing well." Uh, I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, and then on the 17th of May for 2022, I think, Duff McKagan was launching his second book, which I think is called How to Be a Man and Other Illusions. Mm-hmm. And it was joined on stage by Chris Novoselic. Um, they, they talked about the book and then played Sweet Child of Mine with Chris Novoselic on accordion. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like I said, man, Dave Grohl going in that stage with a fucking bloated Axl Rose with that fucking weird frog voice that he's got now because he can't do the proper voice. And then Slash, who clearly didn't particularly want to be anywhere near Axl Rose for the majority of the performance, the way Grohl came on and kind of gravitated towards Duff McKagan, stayed in that part of the stage laughing and joking with him and tried to leave and then it, it, it was just so it felt so fucking awkward I'm like does the world fucking need that shit like as I said in the, the Twitter po- uh, thing that I put up we don't know how Nirvana would have ended up but I think it would have been closer to some something like I would say everyone says R.E.M. I don't know if REM's accurate I think they would probably have done some pretty unorthodox things with their music maybe in the same way as Radiohead become a little bit curmudgeonly and constantly sceptical about the industry whilst also selling millions of records and release stuff that's a little bit awkward here and there and you know that Tom York vibe is kind of where I think that might have ended up they wouldn't have become that fucking grandpa circus that Guns N' Roses have turned into and I just like do we fucking need it Dave do we fucking need it Um, and then the cherry on top of this is that I typed that out chuckling to myself at like about five to midnight on Monday night went into work on Tuesday morning and at about five to noon on Tuesday morning Fucking Guns N' Roses walk into my fucking work. Mm-hmm. I had no idea they were playing in Glasgow. The first fucking thought in my fucking mind was they really didn't like that fucking tweet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how far is that? It's like Metallica levels of settling vendettas. You know how far did they travel to fucking tell me they didn't like this? But uh, yeah, no. It turns out they were just playing in Glasgow. It wasn't about me. They didn't know who the fuck I was. It wasn't excellent slash anyway. Um, but. Uh, yeah, there you go, thought I was about to get fucking smacked in the mouth Well, that brings us to the end of our festival season for an hour season uh. <laughs> The festival <laughs> season for another season? Yeah. It doesn't actually, because there are copious festivals waiting to brings happen Brings us to the end of ours um, What have we got? We've got Transmit coming up, Bloodstock and...
0: And Redden and Leeds Redden and Leeds uh, I'm sure there's others There are, not always going to be others
1: Yeah, there's some of the popular ones, like the V-Fest, one of the ones down in Cornwall... Yeah, there's a fucking shite load still coming up. Mm-hmm. But uh, are you going to go to any? Nope. I might go to Bloodstock.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not joking. I might go to Bloodstock. I might be able to get tickets for it. And I looked at the lineup, my sugar playing it, and I was like, that might actually be justification enough if I get these tickets. But it's a bit like the Glastonbury thing where I'm going to be surrounded by maniacs and be constantly paranoid. So Probably, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was the town hall. Uh, if you would like us to discuss a subject, or if you just want to fire questions at us, Please feel free to do so We will put them all uh, in a little bank of Inquisition And then group them all together And do another one of these maybe With one of our co-hosts or friends At some point soon Yep. Well we're well, glad you enjoyed it and we'll see you next week For some more unsung
0: fun Well I hope you enjoyed it, catch you later <laughs>